Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening. Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. And tonight's topic is rising health care costs. Now, one thing that's always amazed me is how health care costs keep rising and rising and rising, despite the obvious evidence that health care is of absolutely no benefit in terms of improving people's health. So the question then is, what is it that's driving uh, these healthcare cost increases? And I also had another uh, premise that everyone out there is just about as bright as I am. That surely people must notice that the value of money spent on healthcare just didn't seem to really have a return. In other words, the more they spent on health care, it didn't seem to make them healthier. So, given this, uh, why is it, how is it that people are submitting to health care in larger numbers and more money is being spent on health care? And obviously, of course, the money being spent on health care has to be spent by individuals one way or another. For those of you who've been listening for a while, uh, you'll notice that uh, I've been following this amount spent on health care uh, for some time, and as early as 2012, determined that if a person in the United States earns $100,000 a year, literally $25,000 of that $100,000 is going towards health insurance premiums or taxes related to health care, whether that is Medicare taxes, whether it's property taxes uh, that are funding a local medical clinic, whether it's state taxes that are funding Medicaid, but literally $25,000 of that person's income are going out the window for health care, one fashion or another. And so it's easy to say, well, you know, people... People are spending money in healthcare foolishly. They they don't recognize the danger that uh, health care represents, and uh, they're ignorant. I said, you know, that that doesn't really sit well with me. I really believe sincerely in my heart, everyone else is just about just about as bright as I am, and so people must uh, realize 
that this health care is harmful and is simply not worth uh, paying for. So the question then is, if people realize that health care is harmful, if they realize that health care is not worth paying for, then how is it the health care costs keep going up and up and up uh, all the time? So I said, you know what? There must be some kind of price manipulation going on here. Yes. So I went to, I went to Google, and um, I looked up the a graph of healthcare expenditures over time. And I took a look at that graph, and I said, okay, can we see any place in this graph where healthcare expenditures declined, where there was a uh, wiggle in the curve where things seem to be declining. And can we correlate that with some type of action or event in the United States that um, altered this, this little squiggle? And sure enough, there was. How many of you know that I'm uh, 60 years old, which means that I was born in 1957, so my understanding of events, if you want to call it that, uh, pretty much began around the, the time of my, um, I would say, my birth. And looking at historical perspective, also the time before my birth. In other words, uh, I would look back and I would say, hey, you know what, what's what's going? What what happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago? So I usually go back, not much more before 1900. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to take you on a journey through uh, healthcare expenditures and times when the healthcare expenditures appeared to stagnate. In other words, where where it you know there there was no increase for a while, and then boom, suddenly there's an uptick. And see if we can take a look at just, just what, what happened. All right. So we have one, two, three, four, five, five major events, major events uh, in the history of the United States, and each one was uh, preceded by stagnation of healthcare expenditures and followed by a tremendous uptick in healthcare expenditures. And so uh, we're going to start with, well, 1952. And what happened in 1952? Well, first thing is what happened before 1952. So before 1952, uh, healthcare costs were moderating, and the rate of increase was slowing, and really kind of a plateau in terms of healthcare costs. In 1952, the government, that would be the United States federal government, passed something called the Hill-Burton Act. What was the Hill-Burton Act? Well, the Hill-Burton Act took the money of all taxpayers in the United States and gave it to private citizens to build hospitals. I do mean gave it to them. Now, it was uh, presented as a loan. So this money was being loaned to private citizens for the purpose of building hospitals all over the United States. Now, some of these hospitals were considered community-owned, and some were owned by, um, later owned or owned by, by universities or conglomerates of people. But these hospitals were built, and the agreement was the government, the U.S. government, would put forth a 100% unsecured loan, read gift, to, for the purpose of building these hospitals. And once these hospitals were built, the hospitals only had the obligation to give out in free care an amount of free care equal to the amount the government had given them to build the hospital. And they could do this over any period of time. Of note, this happened in 1952, it's now 2017, and there are still hospitals that have not repaid that very small debt by giving out charity. 
But I digress. The real point here is in 1953, 54, 55, we saw an incredible upsurge in medical costs. And so what happened then is the hospital built all of these, I mean, the government built all of these hospitals, creating artificial demand. And people were admitted to hospitals. Um, and again, I went to medical school 1979 to 83. So then there were, we call them old timers. These were doctors who'd been in practice for 20, 30 years. And they would talk to us, young uh, medical students, whenever we could get access to them, about what happened in the so-called old days. And so in the old days, in 1952, when this big proliferation of hospitals happened, people were admitted to hospitals for juice therapy, you know, juices they could have made at home. All of a sudden, they started checking into the hospital and the doctor would write a prescription for juicing. I'm not against juicing. That's not the point. The point is building these hospitals created a capacity, and then the hospitals uh, filled up. So the creation of these hospitals is really unrelated to any particular health need, but something the government did, intervened to do to create and boost this medical industrial complex for this particular industry. So you would think that this kind of cash infusion would be, well, phenomenal. I mean, a lot of cash to build uh, this uh, number of hospitals. Now, I tacked on to the Hill-Burton Act, which is how I found out about it, was the Hill-Burton Act in 1952 was the reason that African Americans uh, supposedly were allowed to receive medical care. So I tacked on to the act, oh, by the way, if you accept Hill-Burton's funds, then you have to agree to provide medical care at these hospitals for people who have brown skin. They didn't use African-American. I think they used the word Negro back then. And so that was very interesting. So I was born in 57. My sister was born in um, 52. And she was born just as the act was, was, was passed. And so my mother went to the hospital to have her. Uh, thinking, of course, that it was okay, uh, but it really wasn't okay, and, and they, were, they were, didn't expect to see a black lady show up at a hospital and have a baby. It was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And um, the, the babies didn't get enough oxygen, and they're uh, both mentally retarded. A little premature, too. But um, So that's how I remember the Hill, the Hill Burton Act stuck in my mind. So I said, well, Mom, you know, did, couldn't she go to the hospital? Well, kind of, sort of, not maybe, but really. So at any rate, that's the Hill Burden the Hill Burden Act. So the Hill Burden Act pumped incredible amounts of money into the healthcare system and was followed by a surge in uh healthcare consumption and an explosion in prices. Okay. Then in nineteen sixty two to uh nineteen sixty two, sixty four, uh healthcare prices and consumption again stagnated. I guess with the Hill-Burton Act, everyone ran to the hospital. Oh, my God, these great big shiny buildings the government's built for us, only to find, hmm, we really aren't getting any healing from this. This is really not helping us. Like, we're not feeling the benefit. So people just said, eh, forget it, you know, there's nothing to it. We're not going to bother with this stuff anymore. All this, you know, technology, these gizmos and and things with flashing lights and bells and and stuff, and these procedures and surgeries. We really don't uh, don't think much of this. And so what happened then is the government passed Medicare and Medicaid in 1965. And you guessed it, huge explosion, uptick, upsurge in the... Uh, in the prices of healthcare. So I just want to mention that my show is about to get cut off. Supposedly I only have one minute left. I'm not sure what happened here. Um, so I'll keep talking. You guys can catch the replay if it does cut me off. So what happened then is 1965, there's the Medicare and Medicaid Act. These acts were passed under the pretense that Medicaid 
uh, pregnant women and children of the poor were too ignorant and stupid to do at home what everyone else does at home, which is, of course, have a baby, and that they need medical intervention. So since everyone is doing these things at home without any problem at all, then the, the question was, well, how why would anyone need this service? Well, the answer is, of course, because these people are poor. They're poor, they don't have money, and they're stupid, and so they need medical intervention. And this was really the birth here of prenatal care because uh, people were uh, people were led to believe that there is these other people, ignorant people, stupid people, who couldn't just call over a girlfriend to help them have a baby. No. They needed professionals. They needed experts. Why? Because they were poor and because they were stupid. And so because the, uh, the, the media, we'll call it the media, by this time was really full-blown in terms of shaping public opinion, they were able to effectively shape the opinion of working, responsible Americans about other Americans that maybe they hadn't met who would theoretically need these services like Medicaid. And then there's a Medicare program, 1965, where it's like, well, elderly people need health care. Um, elderly people are becoming broke, they're becoming bankrupt because of their medical services. And as you get older, everyone knows that you need more medical care and your medical bills get larger and larger and larger. And so then the um, public was sold on this concept that old people needed medical care. And it was still in the United States, and, I, and as, as late as 1979 when I went to medical school, you almost never saw a sick person who was under 65. People were so healthy because of the food they ate and because, of course, medical care was not um, that much perceived as a necessity but a luxury. And so this was a time when if you had money, the doctors would come to your house. If you didn't have money, then you would go to the doctor's office. And doctors volunteered and gave away their services pretty much for free. And so you really couldn't convince anybody between the ages of 5 and 65 that medical care was especially needed in 65 because everyone had a relative or somebody who could help them out, and calling on a doctor was considered generally pretty much a waste of time because the doctor did not have usually much to add beyond what your relative had already done. So uh, Medicare passed by scaring people, intimidating them into thinking, oh, my God, after 65, I'll need all this care. Uh, and I can certainly tell you about my, rel my relatives as to what happened to the ones who are over 65 is they were in excellent, excellent health. And they had absolutely no need of medical care until, of course, they died of natural causes uh, between the ages of 90 and 100. And so this boogeyman of high end-of-life care, high-cost end-of-life care, in 1965 was largely an illusion uh, and a boogeyman. So it wasn't all of this technology and intervention. And the concept of the intensive care unit and of massive medical intervention was really not possible until the fulfillment of the Hill-Burton Act where all these hospitals were built that could then intervene and charge lots of money for end-of-life care. But again, still in 1965, um, end-of-life care was not that big a deal. A lot of people uh, chose to stay home and just die at home of old age. And there was also in 1965 the attitude of older people, people who were over, say, 75, that, hey, I've lived my life. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. I've accumulated a few nickels, not a lot, but a few. And 
my children, my grandchildren can just keep the money and bury me. I'm not going to go chase after um, cures that are not there. So this is 1965. And again, with Medicare, what did we get? We got incredible access to medical care uh, for the elderly. Um, this, this gave life to the whole end of, gave rise to the whole end of life death spiral, where in the last year of life, um, the medical system literally uh, tortured, mutilated, and ultimately killed a lot of people, and sent the bill to Uncle Sam, who cheerfully paid it. And then, of course, we had Medicaid, where now, with 1965, with all of this intervention for Medicaid, now we had uh, the opportunity to start medicating or giving medicines to young poor kids and, again, expand this market for medicines for children. And this gave rise to a whole other wave of health care price increases. So now we have the children of the poor getting a tremendous amount of medical intervention. We still have the middle class um, when it came to kids not doing much. Why? Because kids are so healthy. It was a waste of time. And I remember my, my parents just scoffing, scoffing at the, the foolishness of these parents buying health insurance for children. How stupid. Children don't need health insurance. They are. They're so healthy. They're born healthy. They live healthy. And that sickness was, a, was considered to be uh, a matter of decline over time as the person aged. So in 1965, the middle class largely saw no need for health care or health insurance, or health care for that matter, because one, they were very healthy, and two, if they wanted to pay, they would just pay out of pocket back then anywhere from uh, $5 to $15 for health care. Uh, for a medical encounter. And um, the cost of health care absolutely exploded. It exploded. And then, 1981, I was in medical school, so I was there, had a front seat, uh, front seat uh, spectator uh, position on this one. So here I was in, in 1981. Now, to put this in perspective, I entered medical school in 1979. I didn't know it. But I entered during an incredible downturn, a decline in people's use of medical services. People were very disillusioned by what they had seen or experienced by the, the care they received in Medicare and in Medicaid. And it was clear that, people, that the poor people with this care from Medicaid were not getting any healthier from it. So nobody was too keen on jumping into this. And again, people, people's consumption of health care was leveling off and even starting a slight decline. In fact, when I was in medical school, 1979, I looked around, especially 1980, I said, my God, there's just not enough sickness to go around. There is just not enough sickness to keep all of us people who are training here occupied. So this was a source of, as you might imagine, mild panic for me. It was mild for me because I didn't have any loans. All I had to do was think of a second job. Um, to get when, of course, nobody was sick. So, but lo and behold, 1981, there was an uptick in healthcare costs. All of a sudden, 1981, mm, healthcare costs are rising and rising and rising. What do you think happened in 1980? In 1980, they identified AIDS. And they even say that pandemic begins. <laughs> uh, and yes, this saved the healthcare industry from what would have been a decline. And also in 1981, that's when they came out with the vaccine for hepatitis B. And it was uh, just off to the races. And it says, June 5th, AIDS pandemic begins when the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports an unusual cluster of pneumocystis pneumonia in five homosexual men in Los Angeles. So this is, uh, so what happened then with AIDS was AIDS was a disease prevent, uh, in, uh, invented literally 
to establish a medical industrial complex and take those medical costs and move them back up to create artificial demand. So if everyone receiving HIV therapy today, boom, blink, blink, was not receiving any, we'll call it care, or medical intervention, that would be an incredible economic drain for the medical industrial complex. Um, Now, what else happened? Well, in the same year, 1980-81, was the first heart and lung transplant in Stanford. And this was uh, absolutely monumental in giving a boost to the transplant industry, which uh, those of you who listen to my show, What's a Body Worth? Uh, you can see that uh, the medical industrial complex receives over $10.4 million in revenue from a fully transplanted body. So if you now turn individuals into $10.4 million paychecks, you can see that you're going to experience a tremendous uptick in healthcare costs, let's call it medical industrial complex uh, revenues. This is another issue. Uh, a lot of people say, well, healthcare costs are up, healthcare costs are up. No, 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 no. In industry, revenues are up. These aren't costs, these are all revenues. These are all revenues. Somebody's making a lot of money. It is a lot of profit here. So what happened then is the government invented uh, the AIDS epidemic. The next thing that happened was the first heart-lung transplant at Stanford University. And a lot of heart-lung transplants followed, of course. And so I I entered uh, medical practice. I graduated from medical school in 1983, totally secure at this point that there would be a firm degree of demand for medical services. Now, I wasn't going into AIDS or transplant uh, therapy, but my classmates did all that, thank goodness, but that left more space for me, of course, in the primary care space because everyone vacated that. Nobody wanted to treat cold, hypertension, diabetes, arthritis. That was like, eh, boring, uh, not profitable enough. So literally all of my uh, peers, classmates, um, deserted the ship, literally, so to speak, and went into AIDS, uh, transplant therapy, and um, other lucrative specialties. And this went on for a while. Uh, So what happened was the uh, medical care costs, again, exploded ahead of uh, inflation and all other costs. And it just spiraled out of control. And they kept going up and up and up. And the government was just wringing their hands. And, and then we had, if you'll recall, Hillary and Bill were in the White House. And Hillary was charged with creating a national health insurance uh, act or policy. And so it was on the basis of these spiraling, unaffordable health care prices that this happened. Now, another thing happened um, from 1979 to 83. When I entered medical school in 79, people paid for their medical services out of pocket. If they went to a doctor, they reached in their pocket and they hand them some cash and they would pay. Same with the hospital. But in 1982-83, as health care costs were spiraling upward, people were all of a sudden saying, whoa, I think I want insurance. I need insurance. And by um, 1984, 83, when I graduated, I graduated in 83, but in 84, I was still doing a residency, more and more people were covered by insurance. And people really seriously looked at health insurance as a necessary employment benefit because they perceived health care costs as something uncontrollable that was going up and up and up and could ruin them. And they wrongfully perceived insurance as uh, a rescue for that. So healthcare costs spiraled out of control until finally in 19, uh, 1995 or so, 1995, 94, uh, healthcare costs started leveling off. The growth uh, slowed. And so healthcare costs slowed, and it was uh, incredible. Drug reps were getting laid off. Uh, you know, the economy was slowing. And people just stopped spending on Healthcare, and so something had to happen 
to infuse cash <clears throat> into the medical industrial complex. And 1997, boom, it happened, and meow, healthcare costs again resumed their upward climb. And and it was just it was just ferocious this time. It was incendiary. It was like it was like lighting a match to a tank of gasoline. What could it be? What happened? And this one I missed because I was working uh, in my office practicing medicine. I didn't take insurance, so I didn't even notice really when this happened. It kind of came into my peripheral view, and I said, eh, I dismissed this. This is nothing. But apparently this was huge, and this sent up the uh, other spiral. So what happened? Remember before 1965 when they had Medicaid, the program for health care for poor children? Mm-hmm. And how that plus Medicare just really sent um, revenues for the industry through the roof. Well, 1997, the government said, uh-oh, another, uh, another shot in the arm is needed. And what did they do? 1997, the Balanced Budget Act of 1997, which, of course, did anything but balance the budget, introduced two new major federal health care insurance programs, Part C of Medicare, um, which welcomed HMOs and managed care into the Medicare program, and even worse, SCHIP. And this was the um, Children's Health Insurance Plan. And this now meant that all children in families that are at or below 200% of the poverty line could get insurance. This is subsidized by the government. Now, so you can imagine how many people might be at or below the poverty line, right? Now you double that, and now you've got, you've basically taken the Medicaid program and you double, triple, quadrupled its size. But this is not under, um, some states chose to roll it into Medicaid. Others, most states like New York, uh, took S-CHIP and made it part of a private policy that these poor families could now buy for like $15 a month for their children. But what did this do? This took people and put them into the health system, created a lot more health encounters, um, drug ingestion, hospitalizations, surgeries, things would never have happened. So it's literally manufactured demand, if you want to call it that, out of thin air. And so these so-called um, near-poor, let's call it near-poor families, receive this, we'll call it a, uh, a benefit, not that it helped them at all, it didn't, but we'll call it a benefit. And what this meant, the government says, okay, you now have money, but you can only use this money for health care. You can only use this money for dangerous, mutilating lethal intervention, and we're going to call it care. And so they changed the food stamp program, other federal programs, but this is the impetus for outrageous um, increase in revenues for the healthcare industry under a circumstance where people, had they been able to simply um, pull money out of their pocket and decide how to spend it, would never have decided to spend it on health care. They might have decided to spend it on better quality of food for the kids, um, maybe more heat for the house in Syracuse so that the kids wouldn't get colds and wouldn't become sick from, you know, not enough heat in the house, for example. So the government again intervenes on behalf of the medical industrial complex to give it a shot in the arm in 1997 when clearly people's confidence in the system was waning, people were turning away from the system, and people were, were declining to spend their money on health care, or even health insurance for that matter. Now, along in 1997, what also happened was there was a big immunization push. There's a lot more immunizations going on, which meant we had a lot more sick kids. And in my medical practice, I noticed that the kids who were immunized were tremendously ill, um, they had ear infections, they had bronchitis, they had asthma. They were just plain sick. And the ones who were not immunized were just healthy, just like the old-fashioned kids, you know. Very healthy, they needed no visits. See them once in kindergarten, and then you see them again uh, with their pre-college physical, and that's it, nothing in between. They just simply did not get sick. And so in 1997, we have the S-CHIP 
program. And again, um, healthcare costs just just spiral up and up and up and out of control. And you have all these stories about people who couldn't afford their healthcare, and and because they couldn't afford their healthcare, they couldn't see the doctor. But however, not one single case uh, did it make a material difference in the person's health because they didn't receive healthcare. I mean, all the healthcare uh, stories I've heard. Oh my God, this person went to the hospital because they had chest pain, a chest pain evaluation was $20,000. person had no insurance, they had to pay out of pocket, but wait, but wait, the hospital did not find a heart attack. There was no problem. If the person had not received any health care, they would still be healthy, but they would be $20,000 richer. So uh, all of these tear-jerking stories about people not receiving um, health care because they didn't have money, it was clear that had they received the health care, it would not have made a material difference. Of course, uh, this uh, little detail was never noted by the person reporting on the story. And so um, health care prices, I mean, yeah, health care revenues, revenues for the health care industry, again, spiraled out of control. Now, something else happened, uh, I noticed, actually, I noticed this as soon as I got to medical school that many um, decisions which were discretionary, um, lifestyle decisions, were all of a sudden reclassified as health decisions. And all of a sudden, this thing called health care started dominating more and more and more and more of a person's life. All of a sudden, it was a doctor's job to tell parents how to raise their children, whether they should spank them or not, whether they should uh, tell them to do this or tell them to do that. All of a sudden, Doctors were appointed as authorities, and authorities in areas where doctors couldn't possibly be authorities. Why? Because doctors, what do they do? They put off their child's rearing until they finish their education. That's their first kid around 30, 35, right? So this is the person seriously unqualified to give any information at all. And the information they give, of course, is totally based on uh, propaganda the government wants them to hand out and the government's social agenda, whatever it might be. So child rearing was a matter of medical uh, supervision and intervention. Telling someone who their sex partner should be, who they should and shouldn't have sex with. With AIDS, oh my God, now the doctor's got total control. How many sex partners do you have? What are their names? Let's write them down. And this level of intrusion into a person's uh, personal life and discretionary decisions. And so we now know, of course, uh, it is difficult to catch AIDS uh, sexually. You literally have to have sex with the same person at least 3,000 times. And then only one, you know, you might get AIDS from that person if the person's HIV positive. This is shocking when you um, stop to think that a lot of marriages don't last long enough for the people to have sex 3,000 times. So uh, actually if you have that information, and we had similar information in the 80s, casual sex is the only way to protect yourself from AIDS, right? Don't have sex with anyone that many times. Um, However, we doctors were told to give people exactly the opposite information. Because there's AIDS, because there's this big chance of harm, um, the government needs to step in and tell people who to have sex with, how often to have sex, and, and on and on and on it goes. And, of course, the sexual advice, which is limit your lifetime partners to three sexual partners, um, didn't comport with the data. The data being that in order to transmit AIDS to somebody heterosexually, it takes incredible effort. And sticking around with someone for a longer period of time just means that if they are HIV positive, um, that you're more likely to get it. Now, again, of course, nobody wanted to be tested for AIDS, (laughs) Because once you're tested for AIDS, well, that's pretty much the end of uh, any kind of uh, upward social mobility you might have. So we now had the medicalization of normal functions. So all of a sudden, we doctors were told that parents should allow their children so much TV time. We were told parents should allow their children to eat pretty much anything that the food industry produced, and you shouldn't be fanatical about, you know, changing your child's diet, that up until age five, 
a child's diet is very important and certainly determined his health. But after, after age five, the health of human beings was not determined by their diet, and we should tell people to not be superstitious and don't limit their intakes of certain types of foods. And so uh, then um, I found people uh, had needed me to write a prescription for hearing aid batteries. They needed me to write a prescription for um, tape so they could tape a bandage on. So all these expenses that really were not medical expenses were all of a sudden under the control of the doctor, under control of the prescription pad. Why? Because they were covered or paid for by the government. So now the individual needed the permission of a government representative that would be a licensed doctor, that's me, to consume these things. And many of these things were actually just ordinary purchases. And it it didn't uh, seem to me to make any sense to convert these expenditures into a medical issue. I even was writing notes for people to get certain types of housing paid for by the government. And so what was happening then was what we had was a serious, incredible fascism where the government was taxing people, taking all of their money, and then telling them, you can live here and not there. You can use this kind of tape for your bandages and not that kind of tape. You can have batteries for your hearing aids, but only so much and so often, rather than leaving people to simply keep their money and make these decisions on their own. And so we had this big intrusion of the government making all these um, decisions for people. And so what I realized uh, in the 90s that this idea of health care costs, and I'm telling you it's not a cost, it's very real, it's a revenue, it's a profit, increasing, 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 was not a problem. The goal was to have these costs increase as much as possible to ultimately give the government a pretense for instituting a 100% tax and telling people literally what color clothes they should wear, where they were, when they should vacation, uh, where they should live, what kind of house they should live in, if they can eat food and how much food they could eat, if they can have sex and who they should have sex with. And so all of these um, decisions were becoming medical decisions. And, of course, we had the increase in revenue to go along with it. But the public got a little tired of this. Or what really happened was we had the crash in 08. Thank God for the crash in 08. Why would we thank God for the crash in 08? Well, when the crash in 08 came, people said, wait a minute. My income is falling. I ought to cut back somewhere. And guess where they decided to come back? They decided to cut back on their health insurance. People dropped their health insurance. And guess what happened when they dropped their health insurance? They dropped their health insurance. And they didn't get sick. And they didn't spend money on health insurance, and they didn't spend money on the medical industrial complex. Or even better, maybe they got sick, stayed home, but got better all by themselves. Or maybe they drank a glass of water. Never know. But they got better. The death rate didn't, didn't, didn't notice any blip in the death, death rate, but there was a, a dip in um, health care uh, revenues. So health care revenues show a little nick. And you look at the graph, a little nick right there uh, at, at 09. And so what happened in 2009? Emergency. Emergency cash infusion. The Obamacare Act passes in 2009. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was passed in the Senate on December 2009 and passed in the House on March 2010. Signed into law March 23, 2010, upheld in the Supreme Court on June 28, 2012. And so it was passed in 2009. And we saw the economic results in 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 in the increasing rise in healthcare costs. And so um, we have then the Obamacare Act called Patient Protection and Affordable Act. When actually what happened is the patients were not protected. It was the Patient Exploitation and Exorbitant Care Act. And so what did we see? We saw health care premiums just, just absolutely skyrocket once people were compelled, forced by law 
to uh, take out health insurance. And so if uh, history is our guide, then we can see that 97 needs a shot in the arm, and 13 years later, uh, or 12 years later, another shot in the arm. So 1997 to 2009, so 1997 to uh, 08, people said, whoa, wait a minute, Healthcare has got to go. If we're going to make the mortgage payment, we got to stop paying for health care. We've got to stop paying for health insurance premiums. And they just threw the medical industrial complex overboard. You know, as I say, threw them under the bus. And so the healthcare industry went straight to Congress and said, hey, you guys, you got to bail us out here. They said, okay, we'll do a bail-in. We're going to institute a supplemental tax, an unfunded mandate, by compelling people to buy insurance but not giving them any federal dollars to buy the insurance with. And so they already went through the nonsense with Medicare and Medicaid in 1965, and I think people uh, were not ready and probably would not have accepted a doubling of Medicaid taxes or Medicare taxes. And so, okay, we have to find another way. And so what they do, they... Um, compelled people to buy health insurance, which gave the healthcare industry a big financial um, shot in the arm. And so, what has happened? Well, so 2012, things were upheld. So, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 16. So, it's now 2017, and somebody, somebody has taken a look and they have noticed that, oops. I want to say, look, maybe it's hooray, but the life expectancy in the United States is declining. No, it's declining. So life expectancy in the United States is declining, and we are now spending more than ever on health insurance. And the revenues for the industry that's supposedly keeping us, keeping United States citizens healthy, has never been higher. So if health insurance creates health care, and if health care has a meaningful impact on health, then if we increase our health care, we have to accept that whatever change we see in health must be due to the health care. Okay, so it's clear health care consumption has definitely increased. More people are using emergency rooms, more people are going to hospitals, more people are um, keeping doctor's appointments and now we find life expectancy is declining, then logically, if we're going to you know, go along this line of logic, the health care is seriously uh, is shortening people's life expectancy and is killing people. So this life expectancy, declining life expectancy, is across the board, across the board, from birth all the way over to death. So in other words, children are dying in increased numbers. Now, you may be pro-vaccine, you may be against vaccine, but one thing we can say for sure is the vaccines are not creating healthy children. So even though kids are now getting more vaccines than ever, the uh, death rate among children, natural causes, is going up. The autism rate is going up. And so the vaccines are not helping the children live longer. In fact, they are uh, having a lower life expectancy. And I just had a nephew, just had a baby uh, two days ago. His wife did, went to prenatal care, did everything she was told, and uh, now they have a baby with hydrocephalus, needs brain surgery. If prenatal care was so great, how come the baby so awful? So, in summary, then, every single increase in health care has been preceded by uh, six to 12 months by a policy change of the government to literally create and pump more money into the healthcare industry. So healthcare increases are not an accident. They are engineered. This is market manipulation, manipulation of the industry, intervention of the government big time. And this is why healthcare costs are rising. And they're going to continue to rise if every time the government steps in and pumps money into an industry where um, citizens themselves have decided they don't want to pump their personal dollars into this industry. 
And so this uh, is is really an outrageous uh, deployment of funds. Uh, this represents really grand rob grand robbery, larceny, uh, if you will, on a multi trillion dollar scale. Um, healthcare costs in the United States are uh, preparing to top three trillion. I'm sorry, four trillion dollars. This is a lot, a lot of money. So if you take away the Medicare uh, program, which is killing at least 180,000 people a year, and this is an admission made by Dr. Levinson, the Inspector General for Medicare in 2012, he says, oh, we're only killing 180,000 people a year. I guess it wasn't enough people because there were no charges filed and no investigations done. And then we have uh, Medicaid presiding over the creation of the sickest generation of children ever. Um, you know, these programs were just stopped, just like stopped tomorrow. I believe more Americans would live longer and healthier. There's just absolutely no question about it. And the Hill-Burton Act, major travesty to build all these hospitals, to create all these intensive care units. Uh, intensive care units, if you didn't know, have a death rate of 15.7%. That's a 15.7% kill rate over a period of uh, 10 days. That's incredible. Um, wars don't have as big a kill rate as that. So you have the Hill Burden Act, Medicare Medicaid Act, then you have the creation of AIDS, um, and we know the AIDS deaths are due in, in large part to the drugs. So we have a uh, 11,000 death rate there, but even more importantly is the revenue to the um, industry. Then you have the CHIP program, which is simply a vehicle to compel immunizations because now, of course, uh, the kid has insurance, right? Um, and then, you, of course, you have Obamacare. So all of these things simply create uh, an incredible infusion of cash from an industry whose harm and health is absolutely obvious. All right, we have 10 minutes left, and so we have time for some questions. Um, I'm guessing somebody is able to hear me, so let me go to the chat room and see what's going on here. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's see. Uh, I can answer. Things from things like bees, spiders, scorpions. If no turpentines around the house, it would be safe to also use household ammonia. I don't have familiarity with household ammonia, so I can't really comment on that. So um, I can say that uh, you've got plenty of time to get turpentine and just do that. <laughs> Wonderful. So very interesting and welcome side benefit of starting turpentine with Candida Cleaner instructions with PDF. By the way, go to vitalitycapsules.com and get your free copy of the Candida Cleaner. It is the updated version. I have spastic cerebral palsy, which mostly affects my walk. To my amazement, I am experiencing a subtle and noticeable increase in flexibility in my legs, feet, hips, and so on. Secondaries won't mind perhaps commenting on that. Yes. So cerebral palsy is caused in the second trimester by uh, a parasitic infection of the mother and it's spread to the baby. Now, this is my opinion, my opinion only. Uh, how do I get to this opinion? Um, so when I was in medical school back in the in 79, if the baby had cerebral palsy, it was the doctor's fault. Oh, bad delivery, blah, blah, blah. Should have done a C-section, which of course was not true. So they did more research and took a look at it and they found the cerebral palsy happened in the second trimester independent of any delivery method, whatever. And it had nothing to do with the doctor. So you could not possibly prevent cerebral palsy by getting prenatal care. This was a big blow to the medical profession because um, what they needed in order to really exploit um, pregnant ladies was to convince women that they could only have healthy babies by going to the doctor and that having prenatal care made a difference. And so as, recent, or as, as early as 83, it was determined that there was an event in the second trimester that caused cerebral palsy. And obviously the event is a um, parasitic infection. 
Uh, no, we don't know which parasite. <laughs> the doctors don't look that close. Okay, let's see. Okay, so if people are still on the line, you can put your button there and uh, might answer questions. I'm looking here. <laughs> I feel like if they only offered emergency care, then they could cover everyone without paying taxes, but they can't make money. Exactly. It's all about making money for the industry. Um, the medical industrial complex is just like the military industrial complex. So if you put medical in front of something, you can literally increase the price tenfold. If it's not for medical purpose and just, just regular everyday stuff, then um, the price goes way down. So this is all about the government creating um, monopolies and being able to sell, to um, create revenue streams for their cronies. Okay. All right. I'm a musician. <laughs> okay. All right. Ah, I'm a musician, and I had a gig about four years ago. I met another musician who told me he had a job for 20 years as an audio engineer who inserted subliminal audio into TV commercials. I asked him what type of command he inserted. He said short two or three word commands. I asked him if there was any way to pull the commands out of the audio to hear what they were. He said no. Once they were buried into the lower frequencies, there's no way with available technology to pull them out. They started with the TV commercials in the 80s, if I remember correctly. I will lay $5 wager that subliminal audio was inserted into all those commercials with the command trust your doctor or ask your doctor. And the answer is absolutely. Um, I became aware of this. Uh, subliminal situation in uh, after, after 2000. So after um, I lost my license, I started mixing more with regular people, and I met a sound engineer at a cocktail party, and he told me exactly the same thing. In fact, he was hired to not only use subliminal messages at concerts, but also to spray um, different scents that would cause the crowd to behave in a certain way. And so, yes, um, really the amount of MK Ultra mind control going on out there is such a high level that your only defense is to turn off the TV. Turn off the TV and probably even the YouTube videos as much as possible. But you just need to know that there are people who are paying an incredible sum of money to um, influence your behavior, and it's all around you. And unfortunately, the only defense is to limit the imp input. Okay. Uh, me says, I'm 77 female. My balance is off. How can I correct this? Is it vertical? No, it is not vertical. Vertigo is when the room spins. You stand still, the room spins. But if you're 77-year-old female and your balance is off, I can tell you right now, your problem is that um, a lack of strength. I'm not an exercise fan. I don't like lifting weights, but that's what you need. So you need to literally go to the gym and lift weights. Or if you don't want to go to the gym and lift weights, just get some um, jugs or liquid water or whatever uh, and practice uh, lifting weights, doing leg extensions, and um, maybe hold on to the back of the couch and do squats and use your hands to pull yourself back up. But your, the answer to your balance problem is exercise. That is it. <laughs> so, Dr. Dance, I cannot wait to call my mother and tell her cerebral palsy was never her fault. Well, of course, then she'll say, well, I had that parasite. I didn't get it treated, but the doctors weren't going to treat it anyway. It's really nothing that she could have known about. Uh, you know, maybe if she'd taken her, paras her turpentine uh, before conceiving. Uh, who knows? Okay, we only have two minutes left. Sorry, I can't get to all the questions on the uh, chat room site here. I hope you've enjoyed the program, and um, definitely tune in for next week, of course, think definitely happens. I um, also want to remind people I have uh, one spot left uh, for my Panama program where I'm teaching people how to heal themselves and how to avoid the medical industrial complex because that is truly your only hope. Any engagement, any contact can only end poorly. 
All right, so contact Shelley, S-H-A-L-E-E, Shelley, S-H-A-L-E-E, at VitalityCouncils.com. We'll get some information out to you and see if you're the lucky one to get the last spot. All right. Thank you. Whoops. There we go. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.